Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. School teachers and guidance counselors at a Puerto Rican high school in Chicago went from throwing stones and protesting in the spring of 1973 to 18 months later, blowing up buildings and cop cars in New York and Chicago. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast from Stratfor.com. I'm Ben Sheen. Domestic terrorism. Now, that phrase could have been coined during the years immediately after 9-11, Years that have been defined by multiple bombings, attempted bombings, attacks using fire, even biological weapons, and certainly cars and trucks. And that's all in addition to what seems like an endless list of mass shootings. But that type of violence isn't necessarily unusual in the United States, nor has it been confined to the years since 2001. In fact, a series of domestic bombings and other actions of radical underground groups were all too common during the 1970s. Those days of rage and the FBI's response to them are the subject of Brian Burroughs' investigation into one of America's prolonged periods of domestic terrorism. Brian Burroughs recently visited the Stratfor studio to speak with Chief Security Officer Fred Burton. Let's go to the studio now with Brian and Fred. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Brian Burroughs, who has written a tremendous book called Days of Rage. America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me in, Fred. This is one of my all-time favorite books, and I know we uh, uh, spent some time chatting about it today at Strat4, and I've encouraged all of our analysts to read it. But for our listeners out there that may not have uh, read this book yet, tell me a little bit about it. Days of Rage tells a story that has by and large not been told before, and that is it's a narrative history of the six or seven uh, underground radical bombing groups that bombed buildings and killed policemen in the U.S. between 1970 and the early 80s. Um, Some of these stories have been told in in books about the individual groups, but in terms of um, taking taking it as an era uh, and looking at all of them in their interplay – it was a new endeavor, and uh, it was hard to do, and very, I was very happy when it was done. <laughs> <laughs> Why tell this story? It's a good question. Uh, years ago, I wrote a book called Public Enemies about the FBI's pursuit of John Dillinger. That's a great read, the too. Depression. And I wanted to go back to kind of a cops and robbers-y thing, and I was talking to a buddy at the, at the Bureau Uh, And I was looking for some untold story. And he mentioned a group called the FALN I'd never heard of, a Puerto Rican group that bombed buildings and uh, robbed banks uh, during the 1970s. And I looked at it briefly and thought, wow, is there anybody in the world that's going to care about that? And then I thought, but, you know, they weren't the only ones doing it. So I looked at the Weather Underground, the Black Liberation Army. Um, a number of these, the Symbionese Liberation Army, famous for kidnapping Patty Hearst, and realized, wait, 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 wait. None of these groups existed in, in a vacuum. There, it, there was a, they constitute a single story. And so that's what I uh, set out to write. And it was hard because I went in, Fred, thinking 
somewhat like public enemies, that I would be able to mine FBI documents and case studies for all this. And it turned out that, by and large, those documents did not exist. And so I ended up essentially calling around to people saying, hey, my name is Brian Burrow. You don't know me, and I know you're a long retired, but could you tell me about that building you bombed in 1973? <laughs> so it was, you know, eventually I did get a lot of people to tell their stories for the first time, um, but, it, but, it, but it was not easy. What's the most violent uh, encounter that you came across in the course of studying this time period? The one with the most individual deaths was a bombing by this Puerto Rican group, the FALN, which set off a bomb in uh, at lunch hour in a restaurant on Wall Street called um, Francis Tavern, January 1975, that killed four people. The most workaday violent uh, of these groups was the Black Liberation Army, which was a spinoff of the Black Panthers. They were uh, cop killers, right? That's all they wanted to do. Uh, and in... Uh, New York and also in Atlanta and San Francisco uh, between 1971 and 1973, they managed to assassinate 11, 11 American policemen. And yet nothing other than an, you know, an obscure pamphlet or two had ever been written about the group. And so this was history, recent American history, that I was surprised had been forgot. I use the word forgotten. That's an overstatement. It's, it had not been appreciated at the time, and it had largely been forgotten uh, by our generation, certainly. So that excited me, the idea to to take back and show Americans today just how very violent um, the 70s was, that domestic terrorism did not originate with uh, Islamic terrorists in the 90s or crazy right-wingers in the 80s, that in fact there was a rich uh, tradition of of left-wing violence that began, you know, in the late 70s, but persisted uh, throughout the 70s. How effective was the FBI at infiltrating these groups like the Black Liberation Army or or the Weather Underground? Not. <laughs> in other words, they didn't. I don't believe, if I'm thinking of the six or seven major groups, that they infiltrated a single one. Um, every now and then they would stake out, let's say a young man was a member of the Weather Underground, and they'd stake out his mom's house. Mm -hmm. And he'd be stupid enough to come home uh, for a chicken dinner and he'd get arrested. That was the level of what the FBI was able to do. Seldom, and I, and I have a warm spot for the FBI having told um, stories of, their, of their, their ups and downs through the decades, um, it's difficult to find a period of the FBI where they were less effective against a significant public menace than the spit-shoe, crew-cutted FBI of the, the 1970s was against, you know, domestic radicals born of the age of Aquarius. You know, the FBI was just not really able to let its hair hang down and get in with these people. It did lead uh, to the development of the FBI's first true under, uh, undercover agents. Uh, there were... I can't even pick a number, but maybe a dozen guys who did grow their hair long, did try to get in with these groups, and by and large, were unable to. Uh, but they tried, and the FBI learned a lot. And I think it's it was some of its experiences in um, in in its inability to track down these groups in the seventies. I think led to advances in its professionalism that we see today. I think when you look at that time period, Brian, uh, when you had the FBI, they were so engaged with. Uh, they might have been overwhelmed with so many different things, whether it be Watergate or, or other kinds of activities that was taking place. To me, 
when you look at the development of the organization, it was one that I'm sure they were challenged. And uh, quite frankly, they had an organization which uh, was predominantly white, uh, predominantly male. And uh, how are you going to take members like that and try to infiltrate the uh, uh, the Weather Underground or the Black Liberation Army? Uh, plus, they found traditional methods like recruiting informants and paying um, just really, by and large, did not work. Um, you know, this happened, not to be too tough on the FBI, but it, it, ha- it happened at a time where they were overwhelmed, uh, late 60s, especially the early 70s, and where, the, where, where they were an agency in transition uh, with Hoover's death. Um, early on in the 1970s, when the Weather Underground came out and famously declared war on America and was bombing fairly regularly in the 1971 time frame, you know, they were among the Bureau's um, highest priorities. Uh, but as the Weather Underground, which was the largest and most famous of the underground bombing groups of the 70s, as they faded into kind of a, a fog of uh, weed smoke and apathy, uh, the FBI lost interest in, in, in pursuing them. So some of its lack of efficacy was for lack of trying. Similarly, with uh, the FBI made the pursuit of the Black Liberation Army a national priority in the early 70s. But that once that group... Uh, was put away in 73, um, black radicals were less of a problem. And then, you know, only intermittently after that would you see the FBI rally to make uh, an instant, uh, an instance of domestic terrorism a, a national priority, most notably with the kidnapping of Patty Hearst in the Bay Area in 1974. That certainly got the Bureau um, invested. But then the pursuit of the FALN, the Puerto Rican group, from 74 through the early early 80s, was just a, it was just one big screw up after another. I mean, you, it was the type of uh, case that you really saw the limitations of that white male uh, law enforcement angle that, you know, I think one of the reactions to all that has been, you know, the active recruitment of people of color and women um, and people of a greater variety. I mean, the, you know, the Bureau today is much different than it was in 1970. We'll get back to Brian Burra and Fred Burton in just one moment. But if you'd like to purchase Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence, we'll include links in the show notes. In a statement to the House Homeland Security Committee in May 2019, Michael McGarrity, who's the FBI's Assistant Director of Counterterrorism, said that today, radicalization to violence of domestic terrorists is increasingly taking place online where violent extremists can use social media for the distribution of propaganda, recruitment, target selection, and incitement to violence. Stratfor Enterprise and Stratfor Threatlands help corporate security leaders identify, anticipate, measure, and mitigate risks that emerging threats pose not only to their people, but also to their assets and interests around the world, and that includes in cyberspace. Clients rely on Stratfor to pinpoint which evolving global events are truly significant to their organizations, and that's so that they can anticipate threats and also implement protective security measures with the utmost confidence. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more at stratfor.com slash subscribe. But now, back to Days of Rage. When you look at this time period, give our, give our listeners a sense of the scope and just the tempo of these bombings. I think I think nobody really understands how many there were, and they were happening all over the country during the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, I can remember the 
one congressional report um, in, in looking at, at every individual uh, area of, of domestic uh, terrorism in an 18-month period in 70 or 71, I think it, it, it counted something like 2,500 incidents. You know, that's something on the level of four and five in a day. In the United States. Yeah, and yes, and most, most of those are probably, you know, Molotov cocktails thrown at an ROTC building at University of Maryland, but that's still violence. Sure. Um, I think that as a, as a culture, we have almost no institutional memory of what, of what happened here. Um, I mean, bombs, especially in the early 70s, 70, 71, 72, were going off a half dozen a day on a daily basis around the country. Now, keep in mind, and most of these, of course, to put it in proper context, were essentially domestic uh, radicals, uh, radicalized during the 1960s, who, once the 60s were over, did not want to give up the struggle. And so a very small number of them, probably just in the hundreds, uh, launched a half dozen of these groups that remained active uh, during the 70s. 99% of what what I'm calling uh, domestic terrorism did not involve killing anyone. Uh, it's very different. Uh, their use of explosives was very different than today. Today, when you and I talk about a bomb going off, we assume, wow, somebody's intended or has been killed. Back then, before the Internet, the object almost always was not to kill somebody. It was to put a bomb outside a courthouse, a, uh, a corporate headquarters, um, some building of significance late at night, have it go off, and the next morning put out a written communique um, claiming responsibility and explaining your politics. Now, you know that would just never happen today, Fred, because we have something called the Internet. Right. You they, would put just, bomb, they would just tweet it. Bombs were essentially – bombs in the 1970s essentially functioned as, as exploding press releases. They only <laughs> existed to get uh, attention. And, you know, that's the type of thing you just don't need to do anymore. Do you think that the sheer volume and scope was just overwhelming for the U.S. government to deal with or specifically the organization like the FBI or the White House? It was not only overwhelming for the government and for the FBI, but it was overwhelming for the American people. You see a tolerance of political violence back in the 70s that you just can't imagine today. It happens so much. Today, one pipe bomb goes off in New York, and it dominates the news for two, three, four days or news cycles. Back then, one of my fa- one of my favorite clips, Fred, was I found a little article on like an inside uh, page 11 of the New York Times, spring of 1971, uh, a, 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 an even more obscure Puerto Rican group that no one on, that's listening to this has ever heard of, uh, set off two bombs in two different theaters in the Bronx. The uh, luckily they were small bombs and no one was killed. They went off during the movies, right? Unbelievable. Yeah. So the um, the people uh, were evacuated, and then the the Times reported that they nearly rioted because the police wouldn't let them back into the theaters to finish <laughs> watching the movie. I mean, the idea of of bombs were just like in New York. In, in New York, famously, uh, the FALN put a bomb up. Uh, detonated a bomb at Mobile Oil headquarters, and I believe it was 1976, and two people were killed. And the great New York Post columnist Pete Hamels went by afterwards and interviewed people in the in the crowd. And as I remember, the the headline quote was from an elderly Jewish lady who was like, "Oh, another bombing? Who is it this time? Who is it this time? Can you imagine?" that today no i can't and i not with our 24 by 7 news cycle and social media and so forth and when you look at the the scope of the the bombings from a historical context with days of rage 
Was there any city that kind of leaps out as the center of gravity for most of this violent action? Yeah, I would say um, 75% of it was Bay Area, San Francisco, and New York City. Uh, with Chicago, with Chicago, if you put if you lumped in Chicago, that's probably ninety percent of it. At one point, there was a group called the oh gosh, I'm the New World Alliance. I, gosh, it's been so long since I've discussed it. So there was a group in San Francisco that bombed something like seventy seven or seventy eight bombings uh, uh, during the late seventies. So many that the, uh, the 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 sack the top FBI guy in the FBI went, you know, had a press conference in which he called San Francisco the Belfast of North America. Wow. An overstatement, but he was trying to... Nice soundbite, at least. No kidding. But it was mostly uh, the Bay Area in New York for the largely because that's where, you know, you had the strongest radical communities. That's where you had, you know, a people that would, you know, give support and sustenance to these groups. You know, it was much harder to be a radical bombing group in Atlanta or St. Louis, although both of those cities saw incidents of violence involving the Black Liberation Army. Um, but this was mostly a function of life on the coasts. Did you ever see a cross-pollinization of these groups? Like, for example, uh, the Weather Underground cooperating with uh, the Black Liberation Army, cooperating with uh, the Black Panthers, for example? They had very difficult and complex relations without going into too much detail. The Weather Underground... Uh, famously announced its you know declaration of war against America in January 1970, in May of 1970, um, in uh, spoken alliance with the Black Panthers. The only reason they went underground was to fight not the Vietnam War, but to fight against the oppression of Black Americans. Uh, and then they went underground, and some of their own people were killed in an accidental bombing. And eight months later, when the Black Panthers call you know called for them to renew their alliance and go out and uh, start uh, killing cops as the Panthers and many in the Black Liberation Army want, wanted uh, weather turned its back on them. So circumstances changed these alliances. But throughout the 70s, you did see this. Weather is the dominant one of these groups was the most active. I was able to establish in Days of Rage that it was the Weather Underground and their primary bomb maker who taught the FALM bombers how to make bombs, how to do what they did. The the actual daily explosives manual that the FALN used was Weathers. Um, so there was cross-pollination, uh, but by and large, um, these groups worked, uh, uh, they worked by themselves every now and then, as with the FALN uh, teaming with a group called The Family, which was a, a bank robbery group in the late 1970s, a black radical bank robbery group. Um, they broke one of their men out of uh, Bellevue Hospital. Uh, but those types of joint uh, operations were, were rare. And when you looked at uh, this time period, did you find uh, a degree of foreign money assisting these organizations? Could you find any smoking guns in- involving, for example, a Soviet hand or a Cuban hand? You didn't find smoking gun, but you found smoke. Hmm. We know that the Weather Underground uh, was born after a series of meetings that Bernadine Dorn and its leaders had in Havana with the Cubans and especially a delegation from the North Vietnamese uh, in the winter of 1969-70, in which the North Vietnamese especially urged them to launch a a front of the Vietnam War in America. You know, I think 
people on the right have wanted to look at that and say somehow the Cubans and the North Vietnamese created weather. In fact, I think weather was going to do what it did regardless, but it loved having um, international allies. We do know that uh, weather uh, individual leaders, including people like Bill Ayers, uh, were tracked by the FBI into Cuban and Soviet embassies in uh, Ottawa and in New York. But in terms of actual concrete evidence of Russian or Cuban uh, money or weaponry to them, it's always been supposition, never been proven. And I'd like to think that if it happened, we'd probably know by now. One of the great mysteries of this period has always been the origins of this Puerto Rican group, the FALN. And the FALN originated as a group of, I kid you not, school teachers and guidance counselors at a Puerto Rican high school in Chicago. That's amazing. Who went from throwing stones and protesting in the spring of 1973 to 18 months later, blowing up, you know, buildings and cop cars in New York and Chicago in 1974. And there's always been speculation about how the heck did they morph from that to that? Uh, And there has been a lot of speculation that Cuban intelligence, which is um, at the time was very active in fomenting revolution and Puerto Rico must have been involved. Um, we also know the Weather Underground was involved. So we really don't know who gave them the idea, who trained them, or if somehow perhaps they did it all themselves. So to address your question, the, 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 the subject of outside money and outside influence has always been present in a, any discussion of these 70s radical groups. But, and I spent five years on this, I, I certainly never found that it was crucial or even that it was significant. It seems largely to have been uh, cheering them on. What's the one thing that surprised you in the course of putting this book together that you didn't know? You know, Fred, I get so, I get so, uh, I so prioritized the operational details. In other words, what was known about these groups by and large was what people would talk about. And the only thing they would talk about generally was their politics, what they were seeking to change. I cared far less about their politics than the operational details, meaning how, how on earth do you actually live and support yourselves? And I wanted to know how it was done. And I was able to find, you know, several dozen of these aging radicals, many in their 60s, even 70s, who would talk about it. I mean, the most surprising thing was I was actually able to identify the young man who built every one of the Weather Underground's bombs on both coasts. Name's Ron Flegelman. He's in the book talking on the record of his experiences. Uh, he was never arrested. He was never detained. And he went on to a wonderful 25-year career uh, mentoring challenge, uh, uh, mentally challenged kids in the New York uh, school system. Uh, many weather and other alumni became academics uh, after all this. And so I guess that was my biggest surprise was just the degree to which, look, I, I was not able to sit down despite months of opera, uh, negotiation with Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, the two, the two principal leaders of the Weather Underground. But for the first time, you know, an awful lot of their uh, mid-level people and their top aides were able to talk, including Bill's brother, who told great stories. Uh, and so I was largely, but not 100% successful, in putting together a picture of how these groups operated in America, how you become an effective domestic terrorist in America. And back in the 70s, you could still do that. Well, Days of Rage is uh, 
Well done, Brian. My hat's off for you in putting this book together. And any student of uh, history, uh, domestic politics, domestic terror should read it. Uh, Thank you so much for being here with us today. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Stratfor's Chief Security Officer, Fred Burton, and Brian Burrow, author of Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. If you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to both visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com enterprise. And if you'd like to propose an author for Fred Burton to interview, please email us at podcast at stratfor.com. And also don't forget to leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really do appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Ben Sheen. Thanks for listening.